Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Catch us weekdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm Lydia Wheeler. And I'm Greg Storr. We're in for June Grasso, who's out this week. Ahead in this hour, we'll talk about the legal fight over whether former President Donald Trump is prohibited under the Constitution from holding office again because of the role he played in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. All that to come. But first, we're going to talk about clean beauty products. You know, we all try to become more conscious Mm -hmm. of the things we're putting in our body. It's not just limited to food, but also includes your beauty products. Yes. Your skin is your biggest organ. Oh, yeah. Think of it now, too. Like, even with something like sunscreen, like, well, we do these micro zincs. Well, zinc isn't terrible for you, but, you know, you can do all these different other things that are non-nano to where they don't go into your bloodstream. There's just Uh. so much that needs to be learned. That was a clip from Daytime Chicago. The news show did a segment on the best clean beauty products like eye creams, cleansers, and moisturizers. Some big retailers have now found themselves entangled in litigation over these very products. Joining us now to talk about the litigation is Heather Bustos, a Food and Drug Administration compliance attorney and managing partner of Bustos Law Group. Heather, thanks for joining us. Uh, Can you tell us what retailers are being sued over and why? Sure. So thank you so much for having me. Um, So right now, Target and Sephora are actually facing lawsuits. Um, And really the issue is that they are essentially claiming that the products that they're selling are considered clean. And these lawsuits are stating that uh, consumers do do not really agree with the definition of clean that Sephora and Target have. And so this is one of many. These are a couple of many lawsuits that are now in the wings and probably will continue moving forward. Heather, for those of us who think of clean beauty as making sure there's a bar of soap in the shower, can you just sort of define a little bit what we're talking about? Are we talking about products that you know don't have things that harm the the person using it? Are we talking about products that uh, are environmentally sensitive or, or or both? I think there's a little bit of both. There are ranges of definitions um, amongst different companies, and and that's why there's so much confusion around the term. But most people tend to think it it means free from harmful chemicals. Um, In some cases, harmful is also an issue where it can be, you know, something that's cancer-causing, and people have difficulty even defining what's considered harmful. And so that's why this litigation um, is happening, because essentially the definition is not really clear. Can you walk us back, uh, give us a little history here? Uh, When did this trend begin and and how did it start? That's a great question. So um, clean beauty kind of began as uh, really with makeup in the 1970s. And then it moved into the clean eating movement um, during the 1990s in California. And uh, since then, obviously, we've seen a rise. Um, It's really popular with Gen Z and millennials. Um, And so this has become like a really 
strong marketing term, and it allows companies to really succeed in the market uh, utilizing clean, you know, in their marketing. Are there any regulations out there, the Food and Drug Administration, the Federal Trade Commission, states, anybody who has tried to define what clean means? So the FTC does have some green guides, what they call green guides, that go into some vague definitions, but not specific to the term clean. That's why these lawsuits have been able to move forward is because there's not a lot of, you know, clarity on what the meaning is. What about regulations for advertisers? Um, You know, aren't there rules about deceptive or unfair advertising practices? And would this even fall into that? Like, is this considered deceptive to call something clean if we don't really know how to define clean? Right. And that is the that is the big question. And and that is what the courts will have to kind of come come up with you know, the answer to that, because essentially you're looking at a consumer's perspective. That's what the FDA uses, the FTC. They look at, um, you know, what a lay person would look at that product and essentially think uh, clean means. And so they will have to come up with that definition. Tell us a little more about these lawsuits that are out there against uh, folks like Target and Sephora. What, who's behind them? Uh, what are they claiming? What are they asking for? Currently, I'm, there are quite a few um, plaintiffs' attorneys that are bringing consumer lawsuits, and this is not just in the cosmetic space. This is happening in the food space, the supplement space, and essentially it's uh, going back to deceptive practices, and they're claiming that companies are being deceptive in their marketing, and they're using terms that would deceive the customer into purchasing it. And so that's that's where um, a lot of these issues are coming from. What are the retailers here, Sephora and Target, saying in response to this litigation? In the lawsuits themselves, essentially they're they're stating that they haven't made um, any environmental claims. So I think at, at this point they're trying to claim that number one that the definitions are not solid, and number two that you know, they're not actually being deceptive. And so it's really going to come down to a lot of evidence about what consumers believe these terms mean. Why is this litigation happening now? If, if clean beauty products have been around for, for decades, why all of a sudden now is there, uh, are these, these allegations that, that uh, companies are, are mismarketing things? I think we're seeing a trend and and you're seeing this, for example, in California where they're coming out and banning ingredients. You're seeing consumers become more educated on what's in their product. And a lot of it is, I think, social media. There's a lot of education out there for um, consumers now. You know, you have different uh, apps like Yuka or websites like the EWG, which are giving consumers more education. And so that's allowing them to know a little bit more about what should or shouldn't be in their products. But yeah, we're generally seeing that trend rise. So you mentioned education. So what should consumers know about clean beauty products? I think that consumers need to definitely look deeper than just the term clean and look at the ingredients themselves. Unfortunately, in the U.S., there there are likely, I don't want to overgeneralize that companies think this per se, but if you were to look at just regulations um, from, you know, on the FDA side, and look at what ingredients are banned. There's only 11 banned ingredients um, by the FDA for cosmetics. And so a lot of companies may believe that, well, if the, the 
ingredients are not banned, then they can be used. Um, and so that's really that's really the issue that I see there. Sure. Heather, can you talk just a little bit about the industry and the market? How, how big is it? How many you know companies are there out there uh, out there marketing clean beauty products, and and who is the target audience? So the market is massive. Um, I remember looking and it and it said as of it, it's expected that by 2027 it'll be 11.6 billion dollars the clean beauty market. So it's it's massive, and that's why there's a lot of benefit. Um, to marketing your product as clean. And so a lot of companies are having to make this decision between being competitive and trying to avoid risk in the case of these lit- the litigation that's coming forward. You know, I mentioned uh, earlier in the segment about, you know, that clip they were talking about moisturizers and um, lotions and eye creams and that kind of thing. But when you're talking about beauty products, like what does this encompass? Are we talking about everything, including makeup and stuff? Can you talk a little bit about the, t- the types of products that you've seen? Beauty products, at least in terms of the definition by FDA, it's anything that's applied to the outside of the body for beautification purposes. And so it's, like you said, it can be a very wide range of products. Um, Really, cosmetics can be anything from lotions to um, some, you know, hair products like shampoos. Um, It can also include nail products. So there's a very wide range when it comes to what's considered a cosmetic. Even perfumes are considered cosmetics as well. Coming up on the program, we'll get more on the litigation over clean beauty products with attorney Heather Bustos. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. This is Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Catch the program weekdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. We're in for June Grasso. We've been speaking with Heather Bustos, an FDA compliance attorney and partner at Bustos Law Group, about litigation over clean beauty products. So, Heather, what do you see happening with these lawsuits against Sephora and Target? It's really hard to say what the outcome will be. Um, There have been, I believe there have been some lawsuits recently. There was one against L'Oreal that was thrown out um, because there, I believe that um, in that case, there was no real harm shown to consumers. And that's always an issue that comes up in some of these class action type lawsuits that come forward. So it's hard to say what will happen, but hopefully we'll get some idea as to what the courts deem is at least uh, a shell of a definition. We're hoping that will be the case. And in the meantime, there are agencies or or organizations like the Independent Beauty Association trying to push agencies like the FDA and FTC to give a definition in the meantime. So we're we're trying to see who will will win in that case um, of providing a clear definition. Are these sorts of legal fights new, or has there been similar litigation over other product claims in the past? These are definitely not new. There are many um, issues across the board. So in cosmetics, this is something that I believe is maybe newer on the cosmetic side, but especially on the food side, um, there have been many uh, lawsuits around the terms natural for example, and that also comes in on the beauty side. And in those two cases, in different product categories, there's going to be different definitions. So this is definitely not new. And I think the trend is just going up and up. And with my own clients, my I'm having these conversations on a daily basis where it used to be, um, you know, maybe not as much of an issue. It's definitely be coming to the forefront. And I'm thinking about it as the products are being developed. So, Heather, you mentioned your clients, and and this is something that you're uh, giving counsel on. What exactly are you telling them then? So what we're trying to do is balance the risk of a lawsuit with their competitive edge in the market. And every client's going to be a little different in terms of how they see risk. And so I'm definitely bringing up a lot of the claims that are at issue in litigation currently and what I'm expecting to be in litigation and allowing clients to make those decisions, but definitely trying to steer them towards um, taking as little risk as possible. The issue here that I see is companies are not really immune. I don't think there's any company that's immune because of the fact that we don't have clear definitions. So ultimately, if clean, if that term is allowing companies to market and you know be successful, then they really don't have a huge amount of choice in whether they use it or not. And so what something that that I've provided uh, guidance on is using asterisks and providing their own definitions so that consumers are at least on notice of what their definition of clean means. So you co-authored a legal insight for Bloomberg Law, and and that article touched on uh, equity issues involved in the marketing of these products. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? So in terms of equity, there are issues with um, natural ingredients used in beauty products not being attributed to um, people of color and their 
essentially where those uh, ingredients came from. And so um, in terms of marketing, it's almost erasing some of the origins of these ingredients. You mentioned before about counseling your clients um, about, you know, how to avoid this litigation. Um, You mentioned that some of them are defining uh, what clean is on their own. How else can they protect themselves? Is are some clients just saying, "Okay, I'm not going to market this as clean. And if so, is that them not being competitive? I mean, what what are they doing here, you know, to try to avoid that risk? Yeah, I think in, with different clients, it's turned out differently. Some of them are willing to take on the risk um, of using the term um, and just providing the definition. Um, others have just completely removed it from their marketing and kind of focused on educating on the ingredients they do use um, and the ingredients that they're keeping out. So instead of using an, an overarching term of clean, they're just providing the definition by showcasing the ingredients they're using or keeping out of the product. Ask you to look into the future a little bit. What what impact would you imagine this litigation might have on the industry? Well, it's definitely going to cause a lot of companies to be more aware of the claims that they're placing on their products. It's going to um, cause them to be probably more conservative than they would have been in the past. And this is something we're seeing even, you know, within the FTC regulations and uh, what they're coming out with. They've issued a few new guidances um, in the past, I'd say, six months or so, up to a year. And these guidances are causing, you know, people to be more aware of, or companies rather, to be more aware of the types of claims they're using. And so I think it's all leading up to the same result, which is, companies being more cautious with the types of claims that they're using on their products. Can you talk a little bit more about that new guidance from the FTC? What exactly are they saying? So there is a, one of the new guidances that was released is a health products compliance guidance, which has now, um, it really focuses more on the substantiation side, but it's provided a lot of guidance to companies as to what kinds of claims require what levels of substantiation. And so, like I said, it's ultimately the more guidance industry has, the more able they are to be within the bounds of what's expected. And so when these guidances come out, number one, they're very easy. They're much easier to read than to read through legal, you know, through opinions um, from court cases. And so it allows companies to be more educated on what they can or can't do. Heather, I mean, we're talking about clean beauty products, but is there anything else that's popped up in the marketplace um, that's similar to this, like in when we're thinking, thinking about beauty products that you think could be the next thing that causes there to be litigation, um, some other marketing uh, tool or scheme? Currently, the, the terms that we're looking at, obviously clean, um, the term natural has been um, a source of, of confusion and, and there's been a lack of clarity on that as well. And uh, the term green, which I think goes across product categories. It's not just in the cosmetic space. It goes into, like I said, into the food space and even into consumer products, like cleaning products where they're using natural and green. So I I definitely think in the future, these are going to continue to be a, a source of contention. 
Our thanks to Heather Bustos, an FDA compliance attorney and managing partner at Bustos Law Group. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, we'll dive into the constitutional fight over whether former President Donald Trump can hold office again. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. Catch us weekdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lydia Wheeler. And I'm Greg Storr. We're in for June Grasso. The Colorado Supreme Court last week considered whether Donald Trump is prohibited under the Constitution's Insurrection Clause from becoming president again after the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Here's Colorado Supreme Court Justice William W. Hood III. As to insurrection, why isn't it enough that a violent mob breached the Capitol when Congress was performing a core constitutional function? In some ways, that seems like a poster child for insurrection. It's one of several cases that seek to keep Trump off the 2024 presidential ballot and ultimately could land at the Supreme Court. Joining us to discuss it all is Bloomberg News reporter Zoe Tillman, who covers the intersection of law and politics, and especially law and Donald Trump these days. Zoe, thanks for, for joining us. Um, let's, let's start with the constitutional basics. What is the Insurrection Clause? Going back to the post-Civil War period, you know, the Reconstruction era, U.S. government was looking for ways to make sure that high-level officials, really a number of people who had supported secession and, you know, the Confederacy were barred from participating in government, um, at least for the time being. So in 1868, they ratified Section 3, which is the language that we're all dealing with now, the 14th Amendment, which basically says, you know, if you took an oath under the Constitution to support the Constitution and held an office, um, what office exactly is a matter of contention, But if you did that and then you engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution, you were barred from holding other office under the United States going forward. You know, it's language that was very relevant at the time it was ratified and used and invoked, but then was mostly dormant. 
for a lot of American history after that point. It really didn't come up. There weren't many rebellions or insurrections that we had to contend with. Um, And then it suddenly roared back to life after the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, where, you know, a lot of scholars said, hey, this language is still there. And just because it hasn't been used doesn't mean it's not still operative. It doesn't say, you know, only applies to the the Civil War of the 19th century. It just says insurrection. And it really revived a debate about whether it could apply to folks who participated in January 6th and then sort of more relevant to our discussion today, whether it could apply to people like Donald Trump, who didn't physically storm the Capitol, but were sort of at the the heart of what happened on January 6th. So can you give us an overview of the biggest cases out there involving Trump and the insurrection clause? Um, who exactly are, is pressing you know, this issue and where are these cases? So there are a lot of them. There are more than three dozen that we've found so far that have been filed in courts across the country. Um, the vast majority have been dismissed really early on and you know, are not considered sort of the major challenges. A lot of them have been brought by a sort of minor GOP presidential candidate um, who's been, you know, filing suit in federal court and claiming, you know, because he's registered to run in the primary against Donald Trump, he has sort of a competitor standing to sue over Trump's eligibility. But courts have largely been saying that's that's not doesn't give us jurisdiction here. Um, and those have been tossed out. Now, there are four cases at this point that everyone is watching for a number of reasons. Um, They're all in state court, which is important um, because, you know, what we're really dealing with is state election law and what each state has to say about how election officials decide who gets on the ballot, the timeline for that, the process. So the four cases have been in Colorado, Michigan, Minnesota, and most recently, Oregon. Um, The case in Colorado which has really gotten the most attention and has moved uh, along as farther in the process, was brought by a group called Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, or CREW. And that's important because they actually won, so far, the only case to prevail in getting someone removed from office under Section 3. And that was a, a county commissioner in New Mexico who was convicted of a crime for being part of the Capitol attack. Um, and they successfully went to court to get him removed from office. So they're now bringing this case in Colorado that was just argued in the state Supreme Court. And then another group called Free Speech for People. Um, They've brought the other three cases, or they're one of several groups and law firms involved in Michigan, Oregon, and Minnesota. One thing I didn't hear you mention in there is the the idea of a state trying to keep Donald Trump off the ballot. One might have thought that, say, a state secretary of state who's in charge of the elections might have uh, said, no, I'm not going to put him or I'm going to try to keep him off the ballot uh, because he engaged in insurrection. Has that not happened? It has not. And even uh, secretaries of state who are Democrats, who are opposed to Trump, Um, have been really wary to be the ones to take the leap first. And we've seen a number of these officials say this is extremely untested, uncharted waters for all of us. And I would much rather have a court (laughs) be the ones that sort of punted it over to the judiciary um, and said, you know, we'd much rather have a judge or our state Supreme Court or the U.S. Supreme Court 
make an official determination on these legal questions before I, a humble state servant, um, go so far as to tell you know a candidate, major candidate, probably the you know the front runner for the GOP nomination, that he can't appear on the ballot. Um, so they've you know they're in court as defendants in these cases because they are the actors that a court would order to to do something, whether it's to keep someone off a ballot or take additional steps to deal with these challenges. Um, but they are not sort of actively litigating for one side or the other. They're basically saying, whatever judge you decide, we will follow your ruling. Um, you know, some have supported the challengers insofar as, you know, arguing that January 6th was an insurrection and kind of getting behind that theory, but not wanting to be the ones to say, you know, yes or no, he is eligible or not to appear on ballots. So what exactly is this argument? What's the basic argument that those seeking to keep Trump off the ballot are making? You know, first and foremost, um, that January 6th was an insurrection, and that's not necessarily a given. Um, the term, the word insurrection, isn't clearly defined in the Constitution. Um, so it's sort of potentially open for debate what an insurrection is. And that was something that the Colorado Supreme Court went, went back and forth with the lawyers about. You know, at one point it was a uh, uh, Donald Trump's lawyer was saying, well, you know, there weren't enough firearms that it could be an insurrection because they couldn't have, they didn't have the weaponry to actually overthrow Congress. And then the justices, it was sort of this extraordinary back and forth where they were saying, well, they had makeshift weapons that they could use and there was certainly a lot of violence. So what is the, where's the line um, for how much you know violence there has to be or how much weaponry there has to be for something to be an insurrection. Um, but the challengers are saying, yes, what they wanted was to overthrow lawfully elected uh, government and governance at the time, um, and that is an insurrection. So that's one of the main arguments. Um, and then the next question is, did Donald Trump engage in that insurrection? And the challengers are saying, yes, that he was the driving force in, you know, directing his supporters that day to go to the Capitol. Um, and before that, you know, really inciting them, motivating them by saying the election was stolen. And it's up to you to, you know, go to your state lawmakers and go to Congress to stop this stolen election. Um, and then the sort of big picture, our overarching constitutional question and issue that the challengers are are arguing is that Section 3, you know, does apply to a president or a former president who is seeking the presidency again. And that has been, you know, actually a major, one of the primary issues in contention here because Section 3 is, and everyone agrees, silent on this issue. It lists other offices, it mentions senators, representatives, federal electors, but it doesn't say president or vice president. And what they're saying is there's a catch-all reference to officers, federal officers, office under the United States. And the question is, was that meant to capture everything that's not listed, including and up to the presidency? Zoe, how have these cases been faring so far? As of now, Donald Trump has been winning in the sense that no one has succeeded in stopping him from appearing on a ballot, especially heading into the primary season when, you know, states are, are literally getting ready in the next few weeks 
to print their ballots and get ready for primary contests. You know, he is appealing, however, in Colorado, the judge's determination that it was an insurrection on January 6th and that he engaged in it. Um, Where he won that case was the judge said, however, I don't find that Section 3 applies to a former president seeking office again. So it was, you know, a win in that he stays on the ballot, but they would prefer there not to be uh, official court ruling out there that he engaged in insurrection. So they are fighting that. Uh, But for the most part, he's won um, and for different reasons. You know, in Michigan, the judge there said that this was a political question that the courts simply shouldn't decide. And there's some disagreement among judges on that question. So that issue is up on appeal. Um, In Minnesota, the state Supreme Court said basically that the primary contest wasn't really an area where a state election official had power to keep someone off the ballot. So it was sort of moot and not really ripe at this point. And the question of the general election, it was just too early to decide any of the issues. So they sort of said the primary, we don't really have jurisdiction to to deal with this. Um, It's just for states to help the parties decide who their nominees are going to be. And maybe we bring this back for the general election. So does this ever become a case for the United States Supreme Court? And if so, when does that happen? Uh, You know, I think that all of the state judges are are hoping it does and that no one seems to want to be the final word on this issue. Um, A number of the state judges have expressed concern, you know, that if one state does something that conflicts with what another state does, that this causes, you know, a mass national constitutional crisis. And there's been several exchanges where lawyers and judges have said, and hopefully, you know, if if it becomes really a problem, the U.S. Supreme Court will just step in and resolve all of this. Um, You know, whatever the state Supreme Courts do can be then taken to the justices and they don't obviously have to take it. But deciding not to take a case is, of course, action in and of itself. And If Donald Trump continues to win in these cases and the challengers petition the justices to intervene and they say no, it it really does end the fight. There isn't much more they can do at that point. So we're really waiting for these state Supreme Courts to take enough action and then see if the challengers decide that they want to take that next step of bringing it to the justices. Zoe, is there an argument that the Supreme Court should decide this at the first available opportunity? Because it's it, it isn't the case that it, that certainty is better for everybody uh, to get it sooner rather than later. Yeah, and you know, one of the Colorado Supreme Court justices made that point and asked, you know, what is the point in waiting and potentially opening the door to far more chaos if the electoral process gets farther along? Um, you know, why not just resolve all of these issues now and you know, there are overarching legal questions that Trump and his campaign are saying, you know, these cases don't even belong in court. So no one should get to the question of its applicability to Donald Trump. And no one should be deciding anything about January 6th because they don't belong in court at all. So they're arguing that this needs to just end now. Um, But other folks are making the case that it's, it's out there. And perhaps it would be better to get some clarity before Americans head to the polls. Undoubtedly a topic we will be talking about again and perhaps frequently. That was Bloomberg News reporter Zoe Tillman. Zoe, thanks so much for joining us. That's going to do it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm Greg Storr. 
And I'm Lydia Wheeler. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.